you can make your way in, if you can hear my voice. I am eager to feed you the feast of God's word this morning. Thank you. Joel Osteen's latest book, and no doubt headed to the top of the New York Times bestseller list, along with his previous seven self-help volumes, which have sold tens of millions of copies. His newest book, The Power of I Am, that's the title, The Power of I Am, Two Words That Will Change Your Life Today. Here's a, here's a synopsis of it I, I found. The book is filled with life-changing messages, including the secret that Oprah says changed her life. That the way, listen to this, the way we speak about ourselves determines our destiny. The principle is that whatever follows I am will eventually find you, Osteen says. You're handing it an invitation, opening the door and giving it permission to be in your life. In the end, negative self-talk does way more harm than good, Osteen says. People don't realize that when they say negative things like I'm unattractive or I'm slow, this does negative things to their future and their self-image. To turn around these negative self-thoughts, the book is divided into a list of I am's to get readers thinking about how to reset their self-image. Included on the list, I am free. I am victorious. I am a masterpiece. I was talking to someone the other night who said, she used to say, I'm so tired all the time. He says, you're equipped with the ability to turn that around. And it's not magic. It's a way of life. It's moving away from being negative toward yourself. Now, there are multiple problems with his prosperity theology. But here's what I would say is most dangerous. It's that there's some truth to it. Which is the case in all heresy. But what he says, negativity and doubt are not good for you. Psychologically, spiritually, physically, relationally, or otherwise. By the way, using scriptural terms to describe our negativity, it's complaining, discontentment, it's unbelief, and those terms are far more useful because they have God as the reference point and thus call us to the biblical solution, which is repentance, rather than prescribe these therapeutic remedies of behavior modification. But, and and this is not necessarily a criticism of Osteen's teachings. But an additional problem is the reason for the popularity of his messages. Do you know what it is? It's that people are desperate to know how to change. They rightly want to grow and be different and happy, and successful, and to live their best life now, and they'll try almost anything, including a Christian-ish motivational writer peddling positive thinking with proof texts from God's Word. But Romans, and I hope you are discerning this, Romans advocates a far better way. Indeed, it discloses the truth about sanctification, which, listen, does have to do with our identity, with our thoughts about ourself, but not independently, as if our self-perception comes from our own resolve and willpower, and that's what determines our destiny. No, chapter 8, verse 6 says, it is the mind set on the spirit 
That is life and peace. The mind that is now ruled by the Spirit, informed by His will, not, not our desires for prosperity or health or pleasure or beauty. Do, do you see the difference? Change comes not, not from us pursuing change and the self-improvement we want, but from having our hearts changed, made to agree with God and act like God so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Internally, verse 4 says, in union with Christ, remember this from 6, in union with Christ, we've actually died to all our all those consuming vanities and self-aggrandizement, which is just a big word for self-exaltation. Think, think pride and ambition and the lust to be made much of. That sin has been crucified, condemned on the cross by virtue of our connection to Jesus. And we have been raised, resurrected to new life, new priorities, new selflessness, new humility, new purity, with new divine power to conform to God's word. So it's not become what you believe yourself to be in this kind of reinforcement exercise that retrains your thinking until you realize your dreams. No, it's by faith, attach yourself to Christ so that his will becomes ours. His identity starts to form in us. His glory captivates our delights. And stunningly, listen, his intimate, royal, eternal relationship with the Father, as we're gonna see in the text this morning, will actually become ours, shared with us. It's just, th this is brilliant. It's so liberating, so reassuring. The, the two words that have power to change us are not I am, but in Christ. I am free in Christ. I am loved in Christ. I am righteous in Christ. I am safe in Christ. I am victorious in Christ. I am sanctified in Christ, which, by the way, is synonymous with being in the Spirit. Do you know how this mantra believe in yourself. You know how prevalent it is in schools and locker rooms, movies, business seminars, and the errant theology, which I just referenced and is going to make Osteen millions more. Um, I was trying to think about this. I would date that philosophy. Prob it's probably about 20 years old from now. Does that sound maybe even older, maybe even 80s? Yep. I was a little kid then, so I don't remember as well. I've noticed, though, it, it's kind of getting a facelift, a, a, an update. And I especially hear it in athletes. And here's, here's what comes out of their mouths. They say this, I know who I am. Have you heard that? I, I know who I am. I have my own expectations and standards for myself. And the implication is what Joel has repackaged in this, his latest book. I am, I know who I am. I am great. I am a champion. I am my own motivation. But all of that is the polar opposite of what Romans teaches about personal transformation. I am, according to chapter 7 and, and 1 and 2 and parts of 8 and really throughout the entire letter, I am dead in my sins. I am not good. No, not one. I am rebellious. I am lost. I am hostile to and unsubmissive to God in my flesh, in my mind, in my own strength, left to myself. I, I know who I am. Oh, I do. 
and what I'm capable of as a fallen, self-sufficient, boastful, self-absorbed, imprisoned, God-dethroning transgressor. I made that up. (laughs) But I also know who I am in Christ. I am justified. I, I am innocent of all those things under no condemnation. Listen to this phrase. In Christ, I am more than a conqueror. I, I, I just take conquering. Conquering would be fine. No, no. More, what is more than a conqueror? I mean, how do you, I'm on top. I, I raised my, no, there's more than that. What is more than a conqueror? I don't know, but I, I am more than a conqueror. So are you. Listen, in Christ, I, I am beautiful. I, I am great. I'm, I'm complete. I'm not lacking anything. I, in Christ, I am overjoyed because in Christ, all of his virtues, his accomplishments, his standing, even his inheritance, all of it conveys to me. That, knowing that, is the way we change. It is just simply being joined to Jesus by faith and by virtue of that supernatural bond with him, of that nearness to and association with him. It is by that becoming like him. The the Holy Spirit indwells those who belong to Jesus and his presence is so powerful that it inherently begins to remake us into sons and daughters that God has adopted us to be. And, And all we do is receive and trust and simply cultivate that intimacy and that awareness. We cooperate and we listen to and we follow the guidance of the spirits and we will be changed. And I want you to see that for yourself from the text this morning. So turn with me, if you would, to Romans 8, beginning in verse 9, and we'll be reading through 17, even though we probably won't be able to cover it all. Oh, guys, this is so much better than programs and self-effort. And trying to convince yourself you're someone you're not. Like, do you really think me saying, I'm fast? I am fast. Do you think, really think that's going to change my speed? Come on. <laughs> I'm with Berkeley, man. Just tore his ACL up trying to do a layup. That's, that's me now. All right, so l- listen. Listen, this is what God says about who you are. This is his prescription for sanctification. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit 
himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Lord, these are heavy words, profound, weighty truths that even now we are getting resistance to. The flesh referenced here rises up and it distorts and it lies and it wants to keep us from the liberation and the holiness that these verses hold out. So we are praying that by your spirit, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Lord, that your word would summon forth his power, would stir him in us, would cause us to perceive him, sense him, and respond to him as his word illuminates, as his word goes forth and penetrates, as it convicts, and as it changes the way that we think about ourselves and about you. So Lord, would you, in these next few moments, would you change the way we approach sanctification and would you equip us through my feeble efforts to convey truths of glory that are beyond us and yet are ours. These are our promises. Help us to believe them. Help me to communicate them. Help my hearers to apply them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here are the categories I see the verses of this passage dividing into. And remember... The context is still sanctification. This is how we change. It begins with, number one, your identity. And your identity is as a believer. It is in the spirit. That's who you are. You are not in the flesh. You, as a Christian, are in the spirit, indebted to the spirit. You're actually indwelt. A house, a temple of the Holy Spirit. And as I mentioned earlier, where he is, there will be righteousness. That's number one. Number two is your evidence. That is, how do you know that your identity is in the Spirit and not in the flesh? The answer is conflict. The moral, mental conflict that you entered into when you were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and the reign of the flesh to the kingdom of the Son. Christians, we now fight for holiness. That proves that our identity is in the Spirit. And then finally, we'll look at number three if we get to it. Your assurance is adoption. There's a guarantee that our sanctification will be complete, that the battle will be won, and it's knowing that God is our Abba Father. And not only is our assurance adoption, believing that, celebrating, it, resting in that love, our assurance is also how we change. So let's, let's look at how Paul connects these thoughts, and we begin with our first point, your identity in the Spirit. Verse 9 again. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not, keyword, belong to him. This is one of the clearest statements in the New Testament of what distinguishes a Christian, what really makes a Christian. It is a person who is in the Spirit indwelt by the Spirit. In fact, there's no such thing as a believer who isn't filled by God the Spirit. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ 
does not belong to him. So, so that is our identity. And it's evident in the word translated there as dwells. In its noun form, it just means house, which conveys that the spirit is not a stopover for us. We are where he makes his home, where he takes up residence permanently to live with us. Do you see the implication? It's that in the Holy Spirit, God has come near to you, is becoming more and more familiar to you, gradually taking over you. He's, he's not a guest, right? He's the head of this household. And as his inhabited people, we should just be coming more and more intimately acquainted with him, submitted to him, influenced and led by him. How, listen, how tragic that being in the spirit and the gift that that is, we can live ignoring the Holy Spirit, neglecting the very God who lives within us. Please listen, this is ultimate to your identity. It's not your family values or the difference in your theology or commitment to missions. It is that the very presence of the Spirit of God dwells in you. And we see that reiterated where the apostle says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The connection being that the Spirit's occupying us is for the purpose of possessing us. I see that in the phrase belong to him, that the Holy Spirit abides in us because he owns us. We belong to him. We are his which we'll see more explicitly under the third point, adoption. But realize here that this is why sanctification is certain and not an option for a Christian. Because where God has claimed us as his own and moved in to live with us, that necessarily comes with renovation, with change. That the powerful, purifying presence of the Holy Spirit cannot sit idly by where there is sin. No, he burns it away. Listen, verse 29 promises he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. It's got to happen. That's your identity. We are those who are in the spirit. And remember we saw from last week the contrast with being in the flesh. Here's how you know if God doesn't inhabit you. It's you're under the sway of sin. You're characterized by a hostility towards God, an unwilling to submit to him, even an impossibility to please him. But, but when we're cl claimed by Christ and his spirit enlivens us and occupies us, our minds, little by little, set themselves on him, want him, desire to be like him. That is why sanctification, why growth in godliness is such a necessary part of who we are. All right, so that's going to have to be enough for point one. Do you, th do you think you got it? Your identity is being in the Spirit. You got that? Every Christian is, you are, indwelt by God's very presence. And the apostle is going to proceed to show further proof of that under point two. Okay, you, you all right? You ready? Just give me a little nod. You here? Need more coffee? We have it. I know it's a rainy, nappy kind of day. Number two, 
your evidence. This is the evidence that the Holy Spirit lives in you. It's, it's unanticipated, but it's conflict. That's how you know you're in the Spirit. You're in conflict. There's resistance. A holy war has been declared. Look, look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Do you see the clash? Death and life. Flesh and spirit. Then verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which he does, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to that dead body through the Spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, the enemy, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, war against the deeds of the body, you will live. These verses really should be of enormous comfort to us, especially as, as point one could leave us wondering, am I a genuine believer? Because I, I don't often sense the Spirit or His nearness. I don't, I don't hear His voice consistently, and, and maybe even you are currently in unrepentant sin. Listen, he, he, here's how you know God is with you and in you. Verse 10. Your body is dead in regard to the sin nature, the flesh, but alive because of the righteousness of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the sin that once ruled you, that you couldn't stop thinking about, that kept coming out in your body, in your corrupted members, your tongue, your mind, your eyes, your feet, that flesh is increasingly losing its hold on you. It's appeal to you. It's dying, but your desire for righteousness is growing. That the spirit is replacing iniquity with life and truth. And he's doing it with the only thing that makes sanctification possible, with the resurrection power that brought Christ back from the dead, that defeated death and replaces it with life. You'll, you'll see that when we get to verse 11, but I want, I want to make sure this point registers. How, how do we know we are in the spirit and thus belong to Christ? Your evidence is conflict. It, it's, it's because you're now engaged in a battle and are divided, as Romans 7 revealed, wanting to change but failing and stumbling, asserting yourself again and again, even without much or any success at times, and crying out in anguish over your hypocrisy. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. Listen, like nothing else, that proves you're a genuine believer. Because before your conversion, or if you're not converted, there's no war going on. There, there's no clash of wills. You, you cooperate with sin. You're in unity with sin. You, you feel no opposition from sin. You know, vacation season is upon us, and the Donahues have always made a high priority of planning and budgeting to make that happen. And the reason I'm willing to do all the kind of research and preparation, expend the energy and money necessary, is, is really because of the blessing it is to my spouse and children, the, the, the memories it makes, the closest it produces, and the joy and, and really the refreshment that comes. I, I think it's biblical. Next week, we're going to be running a house in North Carolina, and we would appreciate your prayers as, that there would be grace and gratitude and that we would return recharged for all that God has called us to. But later, in the heat of the summer, 
it's tradition for us always to go to my mom's house on the Jersey Shore where we grew up. And there, there's just something about being at the beach that equals vacation for us. We, we just love the ocean and we have so much fun. I've been playing this game for a decade and a half. It's called ant mill or duck dive and you just have to do a certain thing with the waves and the body surfing and it's just a blast. But you know if, you've, if you enjoy the ocean and swimming it, periodically you will hear this loud whistle and you turn from what, what, whatever you're, you know, Whatever you're playing, however you're bobbing, you turn and you look and you realize, my gosh, I'm like 60 yards further down the beach than I thought I was. And the lifeguard is calling you back to his stand. And it's only in that moment when you turn and you start to move back that you realize the enormous power of the current, isn't it? Now we have fun with it. Pearson, give me your hand. Be hydrodynamic. Come on, buddy. You can make it. I can't. Dive under it. But it, I'll pull you. It's hard, though. You swim. You go backwards. Much easier to just take your feet off the bottom and float. If Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The Holy Spirit is the only explanation for why you've turned around and are now going against the current. It's why you feel so much resistance. Friends, you're struggling correctly in the right direction. But remember, God is the force that is causing you to do battle, to, to face the flood of sin's relentlessness that wants to sweep you away. And that should encourage you, even when you lose ground, even when you are pushed back for, backwards, you, you come up for air. You claw again. You swim and fight. You do get help from others. Listen, just the fact that you are going against the flow of the flesh, that you're not floating but fighting, that is an affirmation that you belong to God and that he is with you. That, that's what the terminology of verse 12 conveys. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. That is, you and I are no longer under obligation to the flesh, to sin, as we've seen. It, it no longer has mastery over us. We, we don't have to give in. And anytime we do, it's not the real us. It's not the new us, but a lie. I was counseling a couple last week, and one of them said, at a certain point in the conversation, the old me wants to defend myself, but the new me agrees that I've sinned against my spouse in the way they're saying. I, I was so happy in that moment. Listen, that's how free we are. So much so that when we sin, when we go along with sin, it's not even us. The, the flesh is becoming increasingly alien to us. Someone that we're not. Someone we want to distance ourselves from. Disowning it. Because it no longer has a claim on us. We're not in debt to the flesh. We owe it no allegiance, no obedience. And in fact, we now repudiate its authority. We reject it and renounce it. And look at the rest of verse 12. We kill it. Look at 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, the body, you will 
live. As John Piper likes to say, make war. That's what you do as a Christian. That's the confirmation that you're a Christian, is you make war. You resist. You refuse to go along. Even when you sin, you still come around. You, you take up arms again. And ultimately, you make progress against the enemy. That is what being in the spirit is and does. That is how we know he's present, is that sin is being killed in your life. Listen, this, here's what I see as a massive problem in the church, ours notwithstanding. Not only are we unaware of and insensitive to the Spirit's powerful occupation of us, we're also ignorant to the fact that his very presence is for the purpose of war. That he's with us to go to battle. Do, do, we, do we even know that? I find no one clearer on this than Piper. After quoting Matthew eleven twelve, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. John writes the following. Listen to this. There is a mean, violent streak in the true Christian life. But violence against whom or what? Not other people. It's a violence against all the impulses in us that would be violent to other people. It's a violence against all the impulses of ourselves that would make peace with our sin and settle in with a peacetime mentality. It's a violence against all lust in ourselves and enslaving desires for food or caffeine or sugar or chocolate or alcohol or pornography or money or the praise of men and the approval of others or power or fame. It's violence against the impulses in our own soul toward racism and sluggish indifference to injustice and poverty and abortion. Christianity is not a settle in and live at peace with this world the way it is kind of religion. If by the Spirit you kill the deeds of your own body, you will live. Christianity is war on our own sinful impulses. Brothers and sisters, you are under attack. Whether you know it or not, War is around you. War is upon you. War, the battlefield, is actually within you. And your only chance to win, as verse 12 says, to live, is by the Spirit. By the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. By the Spirit slay the flesh. What Paul earlier described as that part of us that rebels, that doesn't submit to God's word, and actually that, that directs hostility towards him and his getting in the way of what I want and crave. What sin has co-opted my bodily senses to, to yearn for above all else. As John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But you must know that can only be done by the Spirit. Positive thinking, therapeutic counseling, mental health meds, nothing is a match for the fallen flesh, the appetites and actions of the body. But God himself and the, the person of the Trinity dispatched to our rescue, the Holy Spirit, through whom verse 11 reminds us, Christ himself was raised from the dead. Did you see it? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that's a little bit of power. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, it repeats it like, it, wait, that same spirit? that did the, the resurrection, that spirit lives in me? Yes, 
And if he does, look at the promise, he will, he must give life to your mortal, the same word for dead, to your dead bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. The, the, the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit is the only chance we have for victory. And indeed is our certainty that we will conquer. Listen, if you, let me, let me conclude. If you struggle with fear and complaining and criticism and nagging, usually ladies, not always, I didn't say it. Here's the male version. Self-righteousness towards others. Comparing. Judging. And not that you ladies can't do those things either. But, but think about what your temptations are. If your idols manifest in escaping into entertainment, alcohol, video games, if you obsess over fitness or <clears throat> politics or travel or technology, houses, wh whatever way your flesh wars against you. Listen, you, you must combat it constantly. That is the evidence that you are in the spirit. If, you, if you're not fighting and if you're never overcoming, something is profoundly wrong you're probably not a Christian. Because if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is in you, he will also give life to your mortal bodies. Again, through the spirit who dwells in you. Oh, you know, I, I, I probably need to do an entirely separate sermon on that, on, on how to put to death the deeds of the body, how we mortify sin as Puritans like to phrase it. But let me just summarize briefly, and I can do it kind of with the last point, okay? And, and remember that the last point, number three, is our assurance adoption. And, and here it is in one sentence. Our victory is in our relationship. That's where it comes from. Just like we've seen throughout Romans, it is the gospel. The fact that in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for us. That, that's what wins this battle. Indeed, it is the love of God for us on Calvary that the whole rest of chapter 8 is going to unpack. That is what makes us, God's love for us is what makes us more than conquerors in sanctification. So not only are we not guilty, that is justified, absolved, free and clear, which would be enough. But remember verse 9, now we belong to God. And here at the end of our passage in verse 14, we have been adopted as his sons and daughters. For, look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That should stun you. The power of the Holy Spirit to change us comes from this, from him reminding us that he is our father. W whispering to us. Can, can you hear him? This is his ministry, whispering that he is your Abba.
Father. And the tense of the noun there for Abba, Father, it's significant. It's called the vocative. And it's, it's the case of direct address. It is, this is us directly speaking to, relating to God as our personal. He, he hears us say this. You are my Abba, Father. And you only got that because the Spirit spoke that to you. He is our intimate. Do you want to know how to change? You've got to hear this. And say it back to him. You are my tender, loving, perfect, powerful, Listen to John 16, 23. I find this to be an unrivaled verse. It is just breathtaking in its implications, if I can get through it. This is Jesus speaking. He says, in that day, that day when he rises from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Here's why. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, going yourself directly to God, through Christ, but directly to God, you don't just go, go to your Father. No, 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 he's not just my Father. He's your Father. Go directly, speak to him as your own father. Listen to what he says. Whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. Do you see the love? He stands so ready to bless to serve, to protect, to fight. Dad is, dad is ready. Dad is waiting. Dad, dad is at your beck and command. Just, just call out. I'm right here. That's what the verse says. Look at verse 24. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the father on your behalf. I'm stepping out. For, this is verse 27, for the Father himself loves you. Have at it. That's a relationship. I want you to know him like I know him and experience him like I experience him. That's what I did all this for, so that you can call him, the same thing I do, Abba, Father. Friends, do you know you have unconditional access to God himself? Full approach to the throne of grace, as Hebrews calls it. And that is how we change. That's where we get power. Father, purify me. Change me. Kill this impulse in me. Make me like you. Whatever you ask the Father, especially when you ask him about holiness, he will, he will so gladly grant your request. Do you see our assurance in adoption? It, it, it's... It's not just that we're safe and we, we are cherished now, protected. God, God feels for us the same thing he feels for his son. And indeed, one day he's going to reward us, according to this verse, with the very inheritance of Christ ourselves. But it's not just the comfort that provides 
It's the weapon that is against our sin. Listen, adoption as sons and daughters, calling his Calling him our Abba Father, that's not just to make us feel better. <laughs> that is a threat to our sin. Hey, uh, hey, lust. Hey, depression. Hey, self-pity. I'd like you to meet my father. He's not really good with how you're treating me. That's, that'll get traction, don't you think? I mean, that'll play a little bit better than, I'm not slow, I'm not ugly, I'm not, uh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Did you really write books about that? Listen, because God, God is our Father, it, it only makes sense to forsake the flesh. And to fight against, I mean, how is it going to give us what he's given us? The the affection, the comfort, the peace, the provision, the joy, the the purpose. That's why we say to our sin, you have nothing I don't already have. I I am a child of God. What, what, What could be better than that? I am a royal heir with Jesus Christ. He, he's my, oh, that's my, this is my brother. I have been adopted as a prince. And therefore, listen, everything is mine. The creator is my father. And one day, according to this passage, I will be embraced by him in glory forever. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, and you are, because you're in conflict, that's how you know. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Church, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit, do you hear him? The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Let's pray. Lord, it it again just seems too good to be true. And we dismiss it for that reason. We think, nah, my sin's still kind of strong and... I do too many things to be loved like that and how dare we exalt our feelings and make ourselves the exception when your word says otherwise. This is our identity. It is in the spirit. We are not in the flesh. We have no obligations, no debts. They're all paid. We belong to you. And it is a comfort to us that that's evidenced in fighting on your side. But here's what what blows us away even more. You're fighting for us, in us. And you're doing it as our jealous, protective dad. What a safety, what a power, and what a hope we have. Help us to believe. Lord, let this be the most Holy Spirit thing about us. We walk around all day saying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Abba, Father.
God, if we would just but know that and believe that, we would change. We, we wouldn't have to give ourselves to all kinds of steps and procedures. And we, we would want to know you. We would seek you. And we would cultivate your very presence, your holy presence in us that would just simply drive out sin, make it far less appealing, and would give us power and resurrection authority over that sin. So we pray, Lord, we pray that your fatherhood would sanctify us now as we give ourselves to you once more.
beautiful picture of that now in the baptism of Kyle Bentley. And what better way could we conclude our service? So you are dismissed. Please don't go anywhere. You have to get kids, of course. Uh, we tried to put the baptismal a little bit closer to the building. So if you want to stay kind of dry-ish, you can stay in the building. There's also a canopy out there, but I trust you can suffer a few drops to support our brothers. So let's head out there and we'll start that part of the service in five minutes. Thanks. Mm -hmm.